0: As we continue through this Advent series of Killing Christmas, today we're going to focus on Killing Christmas peace. The peace that we seek that isn't true peace, but there is a hunger in us for peace. Today I would invite you to open your Bibles to Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1. What we'll be reading today comes before the Christmas story. The story of Jesus being born in Bethlehem. And as you read this, you're going to be reading the prayer of a father celebrating the joy of his son being born. And as he celebrates this joy, the Lord speaks through him. And the man named Zechariah prophesies. We're in Luke chapter 1. We'll be looking at verses 67 through 79. Zechariah is the father of the one who will later be known as John the Baptist, John the Immerser. Luke writes it this way. His father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, because he has come to his people and redeemed them. to shine on those living in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the path of peace. Father, as we read your word today, open our eyes to it. We can understand the words, Father, but we can't understand your inspired word apart from your Holy Spirit giving light to our eyes softening our hearts to receive it. We recognize in this moment, Lord, that you're not altogether like us. You're holy. You are pure beyond our ability to understand pure. You are glorious beyond all things. And you, Lord, are precious. To be desired above everything. We failed to do that. We recognize that we have, like sheep, gone astray. Each one of us has pursued our own way instead of yours. On behalf of this gathered body, Father, I confess these sins. Together we repent. Help us to keep that promise of repentance by your Holy Spirit as we turn from our way to yours, to turn from wickedness to the righteousness that you give us in Jesus. Lord, many of us, whether here physically or gathered online, have come to this moment seeking something. Hungry, for a satisfaction that we have not yet found. We have dealt with inner turmoil and conflict and struggle. But Father, we ask now that you would help us to understand what true peace is. Make us right. Make us right with you and therefore, Father, as we are right with you, make us right with others. And teach us how to be right within ourselves. We pray for our nation, Father. Clearly, turmoil and dissension and division have ruled the day. The answers we need are beyond human solutions, human understandings. So we pray for your peace that it might overwhelm your people, your church so that we as your people would shine, would reflect that light into the world around us that our community, our nation might be influenced and changed by the foretaste of your rule as your church represents you in this world. Now, Father, help us as we explore your word, as we discuss these ideas, and as we seek your shalom. This we pray in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen. St. Francis de Salas said, Never be in a hurry. Do everything quietly and in a calm spirit. Do not lose your inner peace for anything whatsoever, even if your whole world seems upset. Ralph Waldo Emerson said, nobody can bring you peace but yourself. Wayne Dyer said, being relaxed, at peace with yourself, confident, emotionally neutral, loose and free-floating. These are the keys to successful performance In almost everything. Pretty sure I've said some similar things to young batters as they stood at the plate. Eleanor Roosevelt said, It isn't enough to talk about peace, one must believe in it. And it isn't enough to believe in it, one must work at it. (laughs) Sometime prior to that, another Roosevelt, in contemplating what is required for peace, encourage those in power to walk softly and carry a big stick. There is a peace that seems to only be found on the other side of war. There is a sense in which adversaries don't lay down their arms until they're forced to. This is what Israel expected from their Messiah. Messiah one who would come in with a big stick and lay waste to all of Israel's enemies to establish justice, to come in and take over. Israel sought peace, but perhaps not the peace that God was offering. Most of us recognize the Jewish greeting of Shalom, Kind of like aloha. It can be a greeting as you come. It can uh, be your goodbye as well. And we recognize that to mean peace, but maybe we don't quite understand the full concept of this idea of shalom. Shalom has to do with wholeness, completeness, (coughs) perfection, harmony, prosperity, health, the absence of conflict, It incorporates much of what we understand about peace and then amplifies it. It goes farther. This idea of shalom was promised by God to his people Israel. But they may have missed part of that. As we see Zechariah working through his song, his prayer to God in celebration of the birth of his son, Prophesying God's word over his son, who would go before the Lord to make straight his way, to prepare the people for salvation. He spoke of the deliverance that Messiah would bring, that God had delivered to them and brought to Israel a horn of salvation through David's line. That's a strong term of a champion. Who would fight and conquer and win to save his people? Today, we need to recognize this core reality as we work through these ideas. The real peace of Christmas is reconciliation with God through Jesus Christ. The real peace of Christmas is reconciliation with God through Jesus Christ. As Israel was hoping for, waiting for their consolation, the fulfillment of God's promise, the coming of the anointed one. In Hebrew, the Messiah. In Greek, the Christ. The promised serpent crusher. The seed of the woman who would finally defeat the enemy. Their expectation may have been a little short-sighted. We looked at some passages last week that compared the hope of Messiah in Isaiah chapter 9 with the hope of Messiah in Isaiah 53. They were dramatically different. Today I want to draw your attention first to Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1. And as we look at Genesis, we won't spend a lot of time there, but as we look at Genesis, I want you to understand that Every single one of us desires peace. We may have different definitions of it. We may have different understandings, but we are hardwired to want the shalom that God promised Israel for ourselves. Notice in the very first verse, in the beginning, God... In the beginning, God created. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In other words, God created everything. It all began with Him. But notice what we see in verse 2. Now the earth earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. This is a picture of chaos. A picture of of this primordial time that is not yet ordered. There is a lack of shalom. And then God, in the rest of this account, orders what He has created. He brings into this a harmony, a structure, a series of relationships of authority and submission. And the physical laws as we understand them now come into being. God brings order to chaos. This is a picture of shalom. Move forward to chapter 2. As God has worked through all of these different uh, parts of his creation, he describes each of them as good, And he finishes the work and describes it as very good. But in Genesis chapter 2, we get the details, so to speak, of how God goes about the specific relationship building, the creation of humankind. Let's pick up with verse 15. The Lord God, this is chapter 2, verse 15. The Lord God took the man... Put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. There is perfection in this creation, and yet there is still work, in case you thought work was part of sin. Verse 16, And the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat from it, you will certainly die. The Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Now, notice, as we'll see in the next couple of verses, He had lots of companions. He had lots of creatures surrounding him. He wasn't alone in that sense, but he didn't have one who was altogether like him. Adam was created in the image of God. The animals were not. Verse 19, now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the wild animals and all the birds in the sky. He brought them to man to see what he would name them. And whatever the man gave each living creature, that was its name. So the, man, uh, so the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds in the sky, and all the wild animals. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and then closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. The man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. The name of, or the the meaning of the name. That is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. All of that to lead up to this. Verse 25, Adam and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. Now why in the world would that be the culmination of your point? The picture that we see here of this nakedness is not perhaps as we might recognize it. This phrase, this verse, is not about physical nudity. certainly includes that, but it's not about that. It's not about sexuality or reproduction. It is about shamelessness, innocence, lack of conflict or shame. There's nothing separating the man and the woman from one another. No wrongdoing, no guilt, no secrets, no hiding. More importantly, that's only a reflection of the fact that there's nothing between the man and the woman and their creator God. There is no sin. There is no separation. There is wholeness, completeness, They are prosperous, and that God has provided everything they need in every way. There is no sickness. There is no death. There is, at this time, no war. There's no conflict. The decision making process is simple everything you do is good. Until you violate this one principle rule. Don't eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The nature of this is simple. When you do this, for the first time, wrong has entered the system. Dissonance, disunity, disharmony, you have violated the reason for which you were created to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. And they listen in chapter 3 to the voice of an interloper. They stop trusting what God has said and they begin to listen to what someone else is saying. We know this serpent to be the embodiment of the enemy of our souls, the devil. And he questions God's authority and his goodness and his faithfulness. And he causes the man and the woman to leave the path that leads to peace. They partake of the one thing in the universe that is forbidden. Let that sink in for a moment. Notice what happens after that. Verse 7. After they had eaten of the fruit, then the eyes of both of them were opened. This is chapter 3, verse 7. The eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized they were naked. They didn't know it before. Now, they knew they didn't have clothes, right? They're not dumb. They knew they didn't have clothes. They didn't realize they were naked. There was no shame. Now there is. They felt exposed vulnerable, uncovered, because for the first time in human history, they were at odds with the source of life and peace. The eyes of both of them were opened. They realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves, trying to find a way to fix the problem, to cover up the shame This picture that we have is the source of all conflict and turmoil in existence. When sin comes in and interrupts our harmony with the one who created us, the sole purpose for our existence to be in harmony with Him. And when we're in harmony with Him, we see in Eden that everything else is in harmony together. We're separated from that forever. Notice what God says when He shows up. Who told you that you were naked? In verse 11. Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? And the man, immediately, for the first time, the blame game gets played. This has never happened before. Um, uh, The woman, yeah, the woman you put here with me. So he blames the woman, but notice also, he blames God. This is your fault. You made her. It's all the woman's fault, and it's really because you made this woman and put her here with me. It's not me. She gave me some fruit from the tree, and I ate it. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you have done? The woman said, um, well, uh, that's not in there. I added that. <laughs> the serpent deceived me and I ate. It's not my fault. It's my background. It's the circumstances that have led me astray. I did it, but it's really not my fault. I was deceived. So the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, Cursed are you above all livestock and all wild animals. You'll crawl on your belly and you'll eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman. Hatred. Conflict. And between your offspring and hers. The King James renders that between your seed and hers. Notice this. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. This is the beginning of the gospel. This is the promise in its earliest form, before the law was given, God has already promised reconciliation through the one he would send, the serpent crusher, the champion, the Messiah, our Christ. Difficulty, turmoil, Struggle, strain, disharmony reigned from that time to this because of sin. Let's take a look at the hope of peace. Notice this Israel expected Messiah to conquer their enemies, establish justice, punish the wicked, expand their borders increase their prosperity, heal their diseases, and show His people favor. This is what they expected from from Messiah. We'll see this in just a moment. We're going to turn to Isaiah 26. We'll turn to some other passages as we go, but for the sake of time, we'll focus in on, on just a few. Israel expected Messiah the Christ, the anointed one, the serpent crusher, to to show up and to do these things, to conquer their enemies, that God would deliver them from all who opposed them. To establish justice, to wipe out all the oppression, to see those who did wrong and to deal with that, to punish the wicked. Wickedness needs to be punished. That's the cry of justice. To expand their borders, God had promised them a land. And he had promised them a kingdom. They came in, they took the land, they lost the land. They established a kingdom. They violated God's covenant with the kingdom and they had lost it. So hundreds of years following following their expectations of Messiah, even thousands of years, many hundreds after the establishment of their kingdom in Canaan, their sin against God caused God to withdraw His hand, to pull back from them. And their enemies came in and conquered Israel, the northern ten tribes, and then the two that have that had gone off, that maintained God's promise, the southern tribes of Israel, known as Judah. And God allowed their enemies to overtake them, to dismantle them, to carry them off into exile. And so Israel, as a nation, was no more. And in the post-exilic time, after their conquering and exile, they continued to hope for Messiah to restore what God had promised they expected Messiah to come in to punish the wicked to expand their borders to increase their prosperity they were destitute now remember back when we were kings remember when all the world looked to us remember the reign of Solomon when we had peace and we were wealthy They expected Messiah to come and do that, to establish their their justice, to punish the wicked, expand their borders, to increase their prosperity. They looked for the healing of shalom. They expected Messiah to heal their diseases. This was the promise of God. And ultimately, to show His people favor. To pour out His blessings on Israel in such a way that everyone around, all the nations, the Gentiles, would look at Israel and say, Wow, God must be great. Look at what he's doing for Israel as he rewards his people. Just to give us a a quick picture of this expectation, turn to Isaiah chapter 26. I'm going to go just slightly past the middle of your Bible. Isaiah is a pretty easy one to find. It's one of the bigger Old Testament books. So if you go to the middle, you'll find the Psalms and the Proverbs, and you're going to go past this to the book of Isaiah. If you go to Jeremiah, you got too far. As we see this song of praise that Isaiah records as a prophecy in chapter 26, you will recognize in here a hope for a peace that requires a victorious conqueror. In that day, this song will be sung in the land of Judah. We have a strong city. God makes salvation its walls and ramparts. In other words, the saving of our conquering victorious God is the very walls of our city. It is our protection. Verse 2 Open the gates that the righteous nation may enter. The nation that keeps faith. Might want to hold on to that phrase as you think about Israel. You will keep in perfect peace those whose minds are steadfast because they trust in you. Trust in the Lord forever. For the Lord, the Lord Himself, is the rock eternal. This is victorious comforting promises, particularly for a people under God's judgment, to know that this is the hope of God, that following these days of exile, following the days of God's wrath, He will return as their Savior once again. He will be the rock eternal for them. Notice what they say about God as their Savior, Verse 5, he humbles those who dwell on high. He lays the lofty city low. He levels it to the ground and casts it down to the dust. Feet trample it down, the feet of the oppressed, the footsteps of the poor. This is the the voice of revolution. This is the Che Guevara passage, if you want. This is the, the, the overthrowing of the government, of the proletariat rising up against the bourgeoisie. But that is very short-sighted and misses the point. Verse 7, the path of the righteous is level. You, the upright one, make the way of the righteous smooth. Yes, Lord, walking in the way of your laws, we wait for you. Your name and renown are the desire of our hearts. My soul yearns for you in the night. In the morning, my spirit longs for you. When your judgments come upon the earth, the people of the world learn righteousness. But when grace is shown to the wicked, they do not learn righteousness. Even in a land of uprightness, they go on doing evil and do not regard the majesty of the Lord. Lord, your hand is lifted high, but they do not see it. Let them see your zeal for your people and be put to shame. Let the fire reserved for your enemies consume them. Lord, You establish peace for us. You establish peace for us. All that we have accomplished, You have done for us. Lord our God, other lords besides You have ruled over us, but Your name alone do we honor. They are now dead. They live no more. Their spirits do not rise. You punished them and brought them to ruin. You wiped out all memory of them. You have enlarged the nation, Lord. You have enlarged the nation. You have gained glory for yourself. You have extended all the borders of the land. Lord, they came to you in their distress when you disciplined them. They could barely hear, they could barely whisper a prayer. As a pregnant woman about to give birth writhes and cries out in her pain, so were we in your presence, Lord. Picture that. This is the prophecy. This is what will be sung, recorded here as if it has happened. It is yet future, the time when God enlarges the nation, the time when God delivers the people and establishes Israel as his righteous people. All of these things, this is yet future. They're in a time of darkness. And Isaiah is saying, this is the song that will be sung. And the picture that we have here in verse 17 is the very nation, the people of God, writhing, crying out in pain like a pregnant woman. So were we in your presence, Lord. Verse 18, we were with child. We writhed in labor, but we gave birth to wind. We have not brought salvation to the earth, and the people of the world have not come to life. But your dead will live, Lord, their bodies will rise. Let those who dwell in the dust wake up and shout for joy. Your dew is like the dew of the morning. The earth will give birth to her dead. This is a reference to the final resurrection. This is the hope of the Jewish people that when Messiah comes in that final day of judgment, that, that final consummation of all things, that there would be a resurrection. Verse 20, go, my people, enter your rooms and shut the doors behind you. Hide yourselves for a little while until his wrath has passed by. See, the Lord is coming out of his dwelling to punish the people of the earth for their sins. The earth will disclose the blood shed on it. The earth will conceal its slain no longer. Pardon my dryness here. I chose this particular song from Isaiah for us to look at because it's a pretty good composite showing us the truth of the gospel before Christ comes to earth. And yet in a clear in a in a, in a clear picture here of God's call to His people to follow in righteousness yet knowing that all of their righteousness comes from Him that their deliverance is from Him that all that God does God does and He does it for us but He does it for His glory and there is wrath for the wicked but if we look closely in this passage we see that the wicked even includes God's people. These references to Israel giving birth to wind, they failed to live up to their purpose, to be the salvation, the light to the Gentiles. Therefore, the people of this world did not come to life because the life was not being presented by God's people. Peace, shalom is God's intent for His creation. But His people must bring about a faithfulness as a demonstration for those around if they're ever going to see the peace of God. Let me press on. Israel expected the Messiah to do all of these things and show His people favor. Notice also, their expectations were not wrong but they were incomplete. Their expectations weren't wrong. You can read all of these things just in in this one passage. And as we go through all of the prophecies in the Old Testament, it's really clear. There is a conquering, victorious warrior mentality that comes up with these things, but they they don't go far enough. They would read this passage and see all of the promises of God to be a rock, to be a defender, to be their salvation, to punish the wicked. But they didn't go far enough in recognizing that God punishes the wicked within Israel as well. Numerous times recently we've referred to the book of Habakkuk. I would encourage you on your own time to to read through it. It's only three chapters. But in Habakkuk, the prophet begins with a complaint to God. Why all this wickedness? What is going on? There's so much wickedness here in Israel. Why aren't you doing something about it, God? And God says, I'm going to do something about it, but you're not even going to believe it. You wouldn't believe it if somebody told you. And then he tells them, I'm going to bring in wicked Babylon. They're going to punish my people. And Habakkuk comes up with a second complaint. Babylon? They're worse than we are. How could you do this, God? And God says, well, rest assured, they will pay for their injustice, but in the meantime, they will be used to set my people right. There will be punishment of the wicked, but my people will face this. And Habakkuk comes to the place in in, in the final summary of things where he says, you're God, you can do what you want. This is the same thing that Job concludes at the end of the book about his life. Lord, I spoke about things I didn't understand. I'm going to sit down now and and shut up and let you do your thing because you're God and I'm not. Israel at this point still has not grasped that God's plan for them is bigger than their plan for themselves. I would suggest to you that our struggles with peace and especially the peace that continues to elude us as Christians is often because we fail to recognize that God's plan for us is bigger than our plan for ourselves. So we chase after the priorities of the world and we look at things from Norman Vincent Peale and and, uh, Eleanor Roosevelt and even Jimi Hendrix or John Lennon as if it's going to provide us with lasting peace. But these are human solutions to a divine problem. Their expectations were not wrong, but they were incomplete. In other words, the peace they expected was not the peace they needed. The peace they expected was not the peace they needed. They wanted God to give them prosperity, to, to give them all of these things, to let them conquer over their enemies, to fix their circumstances. God had done that numerous times throughout Israel's history. This is the illustration that God builds into the history of Israel for the church to be able to learn from. God prospered them over and over again. He defeated their enemies over and over again. And every time He changed their situation for their good and His glory, they took their good and dumped His glory. They needed something bigger. God's plan for them was more than an earthly kingdom. It was more than temporal prosperity. His plan was to bring shalom, true peace, harmony with the God of heaven. Which brings us to the gospel of peace. We see throughout the scriptures the hope of peace. They longed for it. We all long for it. We can't get away from it. But in Christ, the Lord has redeemed His people, brought salvation through the line of David, enabling His people to serve Him without fear in holiness and righteousness forever. Go back, if you would, to that passage in Luke that we looked at. Jesus has not yet been born. John the Baptist is about six months or so earlier, uh, born earlier than him, so he's a little older. They're relatives. Zechariah, who had been serving as the high priest when all this happened, prophesies. Your heading probably says Zechariah's song. In all likelihood, it actually was a sung song, but it's the word of God through the word of Zechariah recorded by the hand of Luke. And in verse 68 we read, Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, because He has come to His people and redeemed them. He's speaking of this Messiah for whom John will be the forerunner. John will go before Him to proclaim Him to make straight the way of the Lord as prophesied by Isaiah 700 plus years before that. God has come in Messiah to redeem, to buy back to reclaim His people. In Christ, the Lord has redeemed His people. He has also brought salvation through the line of David. Verse 69, He has raised up a horn of salvation for us. As I mentioned earlier, that, that horn represents strength. This is a picture of a champion, a warrior who wins salvation. It's not simply giving or granting salvation, we often get this weak, limp, pale picture of what our salvation is. We're going to celebrate what it is a little later in the service as we participate in the remembrance celebration. But this salvation that his people receive comes at a price, a warrior's price. There is a battle. And victory must be won. He's raised up for Israel a horn of salvation. And he does it specifically in the house of his servant David. We must recognize that Jesus is the fulfillment of the promise from 2 Samuel 7 that David would always have an heir on the throne to rule forever. What they missed out on was it wasn't just, wasn't just the throne of Israel. It was the throne. This heir of David who reigns over God's people, Israel, those who wrestle with God is the head of the church today. He is seated in the heavenlies with God the Father and check it out, we're going to see this in Ephesians later on in, in the coming year. We are seated with him when we're in Christ. What does it mean then? If Christ rules forever as the promised Son of David and we are in Him, we who are in Him rule with Him forever. The promise of God is bigger than they ever expected. Maybe bigger than you and I expected as well. In Christ the Lord has redeemed His people, brought salvation through the line of David, enabling his people to serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness forever. After Zechariah describes this salvation, this, this winning of the Messiah, he goes on to talk about what John will do and what this will, uh, will do in us, in the world around us. But in the final analysis in verse 74-75, 70, uh, in the final analysis of what Messiah will do in winning this salvation. He comes to rescue us from the hand of our enemies and to, notice, enable us. In other words, we can't do it apart from Him. To give us the ability to empower us, to enable us, to make us able to serve Him without fear. There's two parts to that. We are able to serve Him because of Messiah, because of Christ. And we're able to serve Him without fear. The the clear connotation in Zechariah's mind is without fear of reprisal. You may, in your mind, go to the picture of Psalm 23. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. I'm going to eat. My enemies are here. They can't touch me. Now we recognize that there were more martyrs for the faith in the 20th century alone than in all previous centuries combined. So clearly what Zechariah says here is not an indication that all Christians get a free pass and everything's gonna be good. You're, you're never gonna to have to worry about persecution. You are never going to have to worry about hardship and difficulty. So when you hear preachers preaching that, run fast and far. That type of a prosperity gospel is a lie from the pit of hell. Maybe I'm a little too soft on it. I just want to make sure we get it, right? That's not the picture that we have. That was the fallacy that Israel, that led to Israel's confusion when they only saw part of the promise. When we only teach part of God's word, then we miss out on the full experience of what he is giving to us. We saw last week that the hope of of God was that not just that the Prince of Peace would come as this warrior king, but that also he would be the suffering servant who would take on himself our sin. This was the conquering that he would do. And that's the reason that we can have peace and reconciliation with God. For the sake of time, I have to press on. Notice, He has reconciled us to God. This is the gospel of peace. He, the Messiah, the Christ, has reconciled us to God, and He is now making the appeal for reconciliation through His church. He has set us right with God. Not by our own merit. Not by anything that we can do in ourselves. We don't have any merit before a holy God. How small would God have to be for my best efforts to be impressive to Him? I might be able to impress you. You might be able to impress me. How are we going to stand before the God of the universe? We can't. Something else is required. Notice as we are looking at this, that he has made us right with God. Let's jump to the book of Romans. I will not be able to do justice to this because I've taken too much time early, so I'm going to have to just kind of spin through this. I don't want to shortchange the gospel, however. In a nutshell, we have to recognize, if you're here today, and maybe you've been in church, and maybe you've heard a lot of these things But you can't say with absolute certainty that you know that you have been made right with God, that you stand before Him clean despite yourself. Then understand that God made you for a relationship with Him. That is the purpose for your existence. Everything else, everything else is superfluous. Your job, your relationships, all of these things are small, compared to the reality that you exist for a relationship with Him that you can't have because of sin. Until we grasp that reality, the rest of this won't matter. Israel was confused because they focused on the wickedness of their enemies rather than the wickedness within that separated them from God. But the Messiah... Jesus Christ was born, put on flesh, to come here to live like us, facing every temptation and not ever once sinning. Not in thought, not in deed, not in omission. Nothing in him was darkened. And he was able, because he didn't have to die for sins of his own, to die for our sins. The Son of God in my place. Christ, our hope in life and death. He died so that we can live. And all we have to do to take hold of that is to believe it. Not believe, oh yeah, okay, I read that in a book. I I, I see it as true. But to trust in it. To believe in it the way you're believing in that chair you're sitting in right now. You believe it will hold you up. Therefore, you're putting your full weight on it. Right? None of you are here doing like a wall sit the whole time trying to support yourself. That wouldn't work too well. You don't have enough strength to get through my sermon in a wall sit. (laughs) Right? You might. but. But you trust that chair to hold you up so you... Put all of your weight, all of your hope in that chair. That's the believing, that's the faith that takes hold of the gift that God has given us. No works. But when you do it, when you are changed, when he takes hold of you and snatches you from the kingdom of darkness and puts you in the kingdom of his beloved son who makes you now no longer darkness but light, Then that light, His light, coming from within you, changes everything else. Book of Romans, notice, quick spin, chapter 1. Here's our problem. Verse 18. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness They became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like a mortal human being and birds and animals and reptiles. Therefore, God gave them over. We can stop there. The rest is details. It gives a description of some of the sins that God has given us over to. We don't want to ignore that. But the point is that God has given us over in our sin to our sin. But he doesn't stop there. Turn to chapter 3. Picking up with verse 9. Sorry, picking up with verse 10. Paul here quotes Isaiah. As it is written, there's no one righteous, not even one. There's no one who understands. There's no one who seeks God. It's not that we don't seek religion. We just don't seek God. Not as He is. We seek a God created to look like us. That fits our understanding. No one seeks God. All have turned away. They've together become worthless. There's no one who does good, not even one. Their throats are open graves. Their tongues practice deceit. The poison of vipers is on their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery mark their ways. And the way of peace they do not know. There's no fear of God before their eyes. This picture of those who don't know the way of peace is what happens with sin in the system. It separates us from God and keeps us from the peace that He has given to us. Hmm. Jump to 20, verse 21. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There's no difference between Jew and Gentile. You can fit in any other human category you want. Black, white, male, female, rich, poor, educated, illiterate, take your pick. Whatever whatever your personal identification is, you can plug it in there. And what he's saying is none of that matters. None of it. There's no difference between Jew and Gentile. For all have sinned. Forget the labels. We've all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And all, all who believe that is, referring back to the previous sentence, all are justified freely by His grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented Christ, Messiah, as a sacrifice of atonement a substitute to pay our sin debt to make us right with God. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. He did this to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He was patient with us. He did it to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time, the time of the gospel, So as to be just, he stands for holiness and righteousness. There is a judgment, a wrath that is inevitable, inescapable. So as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. He is just and will judge. He is also the one who justifies and will save. Jump ahead to chapter 4. Uh, picking up with verse 23. Romans 4, starting with verse 23. The words it was credited to him, speaking of Abraham's faith being credited to him as righteousness, the words it was credited to him were written not for him alone, but also for us, to whom God will credit righteousness. For us who believe in him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. He was delivered over to death for our sins and was raised to life for our justification. Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. Five one would be a great verse to memorize. It might be written in your program for you. Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Turn a little farther to the book of Ephesians. Pass the two Corinthian letters. Pass Galatians. Go to Ephesians chapter 2. Remember in this gospel of peace that Messiah has reconciled us to God and He is now making the appeal for reconciliation through His church. I don't know if it's in your notes above, but you could jot it down next to it. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. I don't know if we'll get there. But jot that down because you want to see that on your own time. Ephesians 2. As for you, He's writing to believers. He's writing to those in the church who have believed, who have been reborn in Christ As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time. Paul's including himself here. Every single person lived among them at one time gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath, but because of His great love for us, God, (laughs) God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you've been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with Him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages, he might show the incomparable riches of his grace, expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved, through faith, and this is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. We've seen the hope of peace that was mislaid in an incomplete picture of who God was, an incomplete expectation of Messiah. And we see here the gospel of peace recognized even by Zechariah that this child who would be born in Bethlehem did not come to be born as a child in Bethlehem to give us inspirational stories and seasonal specials. He didn't come so that we could have a great holiday to celebrate and get family together to watch a couple of special football games and, and eat some food and give presents. That's not it. He came to save us, to reconcile us to God by taking on our sin and dying on a cross for us. How do we experience that peace? Understand that most people first come to church seeking some form of peace. Most people first come to church seeking some form of peace. They leave because they fail to find it. Why do so many people say, well, I tried religion and it didn't work for me. Why do so many people come to church and leave empty? Because they came to find a peace and they didn't find it. Maybe the reason they didn't find it is because too many people who should be presenting a full picture of Messiah instead have presented man-made religion. Perhaps too many of us who wear the jersey have not represented well Perhaps too often we have presented Christianity as a religion rather than an interaction with the living God by His grace because He reached out to us, not because we reached out to Him. Maybe it's because too much of what we call Christianity is really a therapeutic self-help message. You can pull yourself up by your bootstraps and live a better life. and God's going to give you things if you'll just do better things, make better choices. Now, I'm not going to tell you that making better choices doesn't bring better results. That's just math. That's not hard to figure out, right? If I choose to go over the speed limit, I'm choosing to run the risk of getting a ticket. That's not the police officer's fault. That's my fault. If I am a Christian... Same applies. You don't get to speed down the highway, not talking to anybody in particular, <clears throat> but you might know who you are. Some of you are getting a little sheepish right now. I heard a pastor say once the last thing to get sanctified into Christian is the right foot. But anyway, if you are a Christian and you're going 80 miles an hour down US 12, you don't get to pray, God, please don't let me get this ticket when I see these flashing lights going. God's not looking to honor that silliness. You don't get that kind of silly favor. If you're a Christian, maybe you're going to think a little better about the decisions you make. But making good decisions doesn't make you a Christian. Except to make the decision to trust Jesus Christ as your everything. That's where we find real peace. Most people first come to church seeking some some form of peace. They leave because they fail to find it. They find the trappings of Christ, but they don't find Christ. If we're going to experience real peace, and this is my encouragement for you in this Christmas season, don't try to find peace in Christmas. Don't try to find peace in good feelings or changed circumstances. Try to find peace by getting on board with what peace is really all about. If we're going to experience real peace, we must first be reconciled to God. We have to be reconciled to God. We have to be made right with the one who is our peace. Jesus becomes our peace in setting us right with God. He does the work. He gives us God's grace. We have but to receive it. We have but to receive it. But we have to receive it. We have to take hold of this by faith. You can't just say words. You know, I'm going to say some magical incantation prayer and God's going to just say, oh, all your sins are gone. I have to take hold of this. First, I have to be reconciled to God. Secondly, if I'm going to experience real peace, I have to know the God to whom we've been reconciled. I gotta know him. He's on my side. He is for me. But I can't really experience the fullness of what that means if I don't know what God said. If I don't look at the whole of the scriptures. If I don't spend my time getting to know the one I claim to love more than anything by diligently seeking him in his word Then I will not know him rightly. This was the problem Israel had in experiencing peace with God, experiencing shalom. Their expectations were off because they embraced part of the scripture, not all of it. I'm not even talking about the New Testament here, I'm talking about Israel's own scripture the, the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament. They did not take hold of all of it. They saw the holiness of the victorious Messiah. They saw the judgment that would come upon their enemies and all those who are wicked. And they missed on the fact that they were the wicked. That the majority of the prophets is dealing with everything after you get past the Psalms. this, This whole thing is laid out to point out Israel's wickedness. The wickedness of the people of God. Unless you think that is about somebody over the ocean or somebody from a particular ethnic background he's talking about those who claim to know him so you could plug in your own name for Israel this is what God is saying to the church if you're mine then be mine don't be halfway Israel was confused because they didn't see their own wickedness not fully They were also confused because they didn't see the full mercy of God. They didn't see God telling them over and over and over again, I didn't choose you because you deserved it. I chose you because I chose you and I'm God. I found you lying in your own blood, naked and poor. And I covered you with my robe and I made you my bride. This is the power of grace. And if we miss that, we don't know God. If I'm going to experience peace, real peace, I have to know the God to whom I have been reconciled. Learn what God says, what He really says. And then thirdly, if I'm going to experience real peace, we must walk in the grace that has saved us. We must walk in the grace that has saved us. If you're going to experience the the peace of God, because you have found peace with God through Jesus Christ then you need to continue in this faith in the very same way you were saved you're saved by faith by grace through faith so how do we walk according to his grace by faith it's the spirit in us that enables us to serve God without fear in holiness and righteousness Walk in the grace that you have received, the grace that has saved us. If we're missing any part of this, any of these three legs of the stool, then my peace cannot stand. I can't try to walk in grace without knowing God as He truly is, without knowing His Word. I can't know His Word and not choose to rely upon His promises. And none of it matters if I have not received His grace through faith in Jesus. Because Jesus has made us right, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through Him. The essence of shalom is harmony with God. That's what real peace is. Harmony with God. When we align our thoughts with God's truth, We will align our experience with God's reality. And the result will be a peace that transcends human understanding. Why was Jeff a couple of weeks ago able to to teach us from Philippians 4 4 through 8 about rejoicing in the Lord always? To be able to not stress, but to give our our struggles to God in prayer with thanksgiving? Why was was Paul able to say, You can have a peace. That passes all understanding? Because of Christ reconciling us to God, knowing Him, walking with Him. Since we've been justified through faith in Christ, He's given us peace with God. In that relationship, we are able, <clears throat> excuse me, we are able to trust God to do all that He said He would do. Our peace with Him allows us to experience peace in Him regardless of the commotion around us. Let's pray together. Father, as we, uh, as we today seek to kill the false peace that we have so often protected, the things that we have adored in the flesh that kill Christmas in us, Lord, we ask that You would open our eyes to the reality of reconciliation with you through Jesus. Some here for the first time, some who have never known this peace, they've never experienced this reconciliation. For many others, Lord, we've been saved, we've been reconciled, but we've failed to experience peace because we stopped there. Carry us forward, Lord. Remind us of truth. Help us to find ourselves in Christ alone. We pray these things in His name. Amen. Amen. On the first Sunday of the month, we celebrate what what we refer to here as the remembrance celebration. You may know it as the Lord's Supper, the communion, the Eucharist. All of these meaningful terms are, are useful in understanding it, but As Jesus said, as often as you do this, do it in remembrance of me. We celebrate this horrifying murder, not because there's anything good or glorious about it in itself, but because of what God has done through it. Jesus said, it's not just murder. Nobody takes my life from me. I lay it down of my own accord. For you. So throughout the history of the church, we have done as Jesus told us to do, and we have celebrated, often we've messed it up along the way by getting too much human religion mixed in, but we have celebrated His sacrifice for us, the work of Christ on the cross that saves us.